For October 27th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 330. Cut us, do we not bleed? Wrong us, do we not revenge? Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Matt Rather has gone into hiding as he has angered the wrong man who is an inevitable and inexorable quest for vengeance. But the rest of us march on here in the safe confines of the Overthinking It continental. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is John Wick cast 2014, which, based on the performance of the Keanu Reeves comeback thriller John Wick, will probably be the last John Wick cast that Overthinking It has the pleasure of doing, but it will be a glorious one. Uh, There will be John Wick spoilers in this podcast. However, if you have not seen John Wick as a lot of people did not. Uh, and, you know, you want to kind of hang in and take part in the in the conversation and, and whatnot. We will be talking about a bunch of other topics as well. So I got a wonderful, we got a, a rich panel. We are blessed with many powerful uh, minds on this particular podcast. I'm glad to have everybody here. Uh, I guess rather than introduce everybody uh, up front, like Rather has been doing lately, I'll just head straight to the question of the week. So uh, panel. Today's question of the week, the Keanu Reeves Rock'em Sock'em comeback film John Wick was defeated at the box office this week by the movie based on the Ouija board, which is an unfortunate circumstance for those of us who like Keanu Reeves and dislike uh, predictive uh, tabletop entertainments. So... uh, as many of you who might be longtime overthinkers know, longtime overthinkers, there is an old article written by our own Jordan Stokes back when the Ouija board movie was first optioned back in June of 2008, suggesting uh, five board game movie tie-in ideas that would be better than the Ouija board. This is back when we thought the Ouija board movie was going to be a big budget Michael Bay movie uh, for some reason. I think his production even was associated with it in some way. It turned out, I think, to be a relatively run-of-the-mill horror film as far as I know. But I didn't see that one. But panel, your challenge today is uh, what movie, you know, excluding the ones on Jordan's list, feel free to name-check Jordan's list from 2008 and go through it if it amuses you. But come up with a new one. What, what board game could inspire a better movie than the Ouija board movie that ruled the roost? as they sometimes say, this weekend at the box office. Ben Adams, you're first in the alphabet. How are you doing, and what board game reigns supreme? Hey, Pete, I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, John Wick was uh, awesome last night. I'm, I'm psyched to talk about it. But uh, as far as board game movies, i got to go with the, the German-style board game Ticket to Ride. Are, are you guys familiar with this game? I love that game. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So for those not familiar, Ticket to Ride is uh, basically putting trains down on a map of, I think the first one was the U.S., but there have been expansions for different parts of the world. And uh, you try to build routes and you score points for the routes that you build. Uh, And so as far as directors for this movie, uh, I think we can go two different ways, or at least styles of movie. Uh, I don't really know who would direct it, but uh, the game is kind of... To the extent that the game has plot, it's set in, like, maybe the 1800s when we were still building the rails. So I'm picturing, like, a three-hour, like, epic about two families building the rail empire, like, trying to block each other at every turn. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I think could be extremely entertaining. Now, one of the big questions in board game film adaptations is how closely does the film resemble the playing of the board game versus merely sharing a subject matter with it? Uh, how, for you, for your Ticket to Ride, how much of it – I mean, Ticket to Ride, as I understand it, is defined by these sweeping arcs of train track that are built in bright, thick colors across the map as you sit down and play with your friends, right? That's sort of the dominating – aesthetic of Ticket to Ride. Uh, would you incorporate that visual style or would it be sort of a railroad tycoon movie where Ticket to Ride was associated to sort of get people in the seats? I, I think you could do the colors. You could have the, you know, the, the different rail companies each have all of their, you know, cars painted blue or painted bright red. It could make it, uh, you know, quite stylish. I, I think you could, could make this happen. All right, cool. Well, you well, know I, what, I'm... I, Yep. I sh- should suggest one director, though, only because the, the guy who invented the game Ticket to Ride is named Alan Moore. So clearly Zack Snyder is the only possible director. <laughs> <laughs> of course, citing Zack Snyder's uh, boffo direction of the Alan Moore classic comic book adaptation Watchmen, right? Well, it's not a classic adaptation. It's a classic comic book. It's a classic graphic novel. I don't know if the adaptation It's, it's an adaptation. Yes. So are you saying that Ticket to Ride would have a number of, of computer-generated, full-frontal nude, like, blue men walking around? Or is that just for the last Zack Snyder adaptation that we're talking about? I mean, to stay true to the original property, it would have to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think the Ticket to Ride fans would be up in arms. Up in arms. Oh, man. So Mark Lee is here with us, of course, as always, an overthinking stalwart, if ever there was one. Mark, is there a board game adaptation you would like to see on the silver screen more than you'd like to see the little arrow thing with a hole in it that people see letters through? <laughs> when you put it that way, I guess the only <laughs> thing I could say is yes. <laughs> and that, <laughs> board game that, I was like, that is <laughs> how I seek to put things, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and the board game that I would like to see adapted in the movie is, of course, Settlers of Catan. Um, a fantastic board game about oh, settling Catan and trading resources and building stuff. It's kind of like Civilization in that you're trying to build an empire uh, and build it faster than your opponents. Um, but my movie is definitely going to be uh, a meta movie. It's not going to be entirely in-universe because the first half of the movie is going to be devoted to people sitting around the board game um, trying in vain to explain the rules to each other because that <laughs> is the experience of playing Settlers of Catan. With so civilians, like, anyway, of course. I, I, my, in my version of the movie, there's a 45-minute-long stretch in the middle where someone just goes, you got any sheep? You got any sheep? I have wheat for sheep. Wheat? Wheat for sheep? <laughs> and then someone else goes, and then someone else starts calling it grass. I'm like, no, 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 it's not grass. <laughs> Sheep. It's, oh, it's, it's wheat. It's wheat. Get it right because uh, you know how are you, how the hell are you supposed to build cities on grass? Right. We built this city on rock and roll and wheat and sheep and brick and wood. Those are the things, right? Now, now wood. Yes. There, well, there's the yeah, not grass. Yeah. No, not grass. So I, would would Catan in the film share the character the distinct characteristics of Catan in the board game in that whenever a new group of people comes to settle it, there is a giant tech shift and the entire terrain of the island is changed uh, irrevocably to some new configuration oh yeah yeah that, that's yeah. good it's referring to the uh, hexagonal tiles right which uh, lay down the resources on it which but uh, can be can be randomly generated right 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 and who would play the uh, the bandit the uh, the marauder the ruffian oh, man that's a good question john malkovich 
I don't know why, but that was the first thing that came to mind is John Malkovich. I'm just John imagine- Malkovich plays a robber. <laughs> I'm just imagining a gold mine that's where, and John Malkovich is just standing above the gold mine, and as long as he's standing there, no one can do any work. They're all just like, we can't. Because, of course, in Settlers of Catan, when the robber is adjacent to one of your territorial resources, uh, or you not cannot... He's on it, right? Or he's on it. Well, and yeah. you, you, you have like, yeah, when he's on it, then you uh, you can't harvest that resource. It just doesn't work for some reason. Yeah. So think- it should all be worth noted that uh, Settlers of Catan in pop culture has already been notably parodied in Parks and Rec. Has anybody seen that episode of the Cones of Dunshire? The no? Cones of Dunshire, yeah. We're, okay, we're right. on the same wavelength there, Mark. Right, 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 I'm, I'm right. totally with you. And, well, the, the thing is that the Settlers of Catan makers were in on the joke. Right, they actually helped create the rules of Cones of Dunshire, which is um, the whole point of it is that um, the character Ben, uh, in his week of uh, in between jobs, uh, has a ton of free time and spends all of it uh, creating an elaborate working with very difficult rules to explain, which is clearly evoking um, the difficulty of explaining the rules of Settlers of Catan. And uh, the actual makers of Settlers of Catan made the rules for Cones of Dunshire, which apparently is an actual playable game. As well, which which boggles the mind. Um, anyway, yeah. I'm saying is that this goes many many layers deep, um, and so you can have like a, a, a Cones of Dunshire movie within the Settlers of Catan movie, yeah. and it would be awesome, and, and I would watch it. I always found it a little bit interesting that people think of the rules of Settlers of Catan as difficult to understand because there are so many board games that are so much harder. Right? That are just like that Settlers of Catan is sort of like it's like there. Are, I think we might have even talked about this in the podcast before. How there were two kinds of game nights, right? Yep. There are like apples to apples game nights and Settlers of Catan game nights. There are game nights where the game is sort of a social enabler, and there are game nights where the presence of people is an enabler for the existence of the game, right? Where it's um, and Settlers of Catan is like the gateway game that leads you into all the other stuff, right? The the Agricolas of the world. The um, I played I played an Arkham horror-y kind of game recently, though not Arkham Horror. I forget exactly what it was called. There's a lot of really complicated games out there. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that, Pete, but I, I will not uh, let Settlers of Catan pass as an easy game to understand. Mm. I mean, it should not be mistaken as such. I mean, Pete, should we just spend the rest of this podcast explaining the rules of Settlers of Catan to each other? Does I feel that like sound like a great idea. I feel like, like great we, I feel like were we to do so, we would commit such a grave wrong against someone listening to this podcast that they might drop everything they're doing in their life and relentlessly hunt us down and kill us as if we had killed their dog and stolen oh. our heart. Uh, so Jordan Stokes, Jordan, the author of the. Who knew that it was actually going to come to pass? Ouija movie article back from 2008, uh, which ended up being oddly prophetic. I suppose. Um, well, not prophetic, just in the sense that it, it, there was a future in which there was a Ouija movie, but it was like six freaking years later. What is your – do you want to go through some of your one examples from your, uh, from your old article, or do you want to just jump into something new? I think I'll jump into something new. People, people can read it there. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that one of you guys would read some of them, but I feel like it would be unseemly for me to read some of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that uh, I have a game picked out, which is the classic game Sorry, which I always <laughs> love because it's, it's not just sorry. There's an exclamation mark. You've got to pronounce it. And uh, this is going to be less a movie than what, the, what Hollywood ought to say to America for not being able to come up with any original stories anymore. Oh, um, oh snap! You just Sick so- burn! <laughs> and, uh, and I know that you're going to love it, Pete, because just like the board game, sorry, it will have not one, not two, but fully eight scenes that, are take, that take place on zip lines. <laughs> do, people just, do people slide down and knock the other people off the zip lines? And That's then literally the entirety of the movie. It's, it's a shock. <laughs> 
it's a shot of that over and over again. And then every now and then it cuts to like Harvey Weinstein just sort of like shrugging and being like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. All right. So uh, and yeah, I guess I guess we know how pre- how presentationalist that's going to be. Or will people be dressed in the right colors? Will they have those little bulbous tops and bottoms? Or is it, uh, are, will people be sarcastic when they say sorry or will it be sincere? Or will it vary? Will there be like texture to it uh, with like Oscar caliber performances? Who would be the people saying sorry in your sorry movie, Jordan? Who would be the stars? Who do you want to hear say sorry? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is a, uh, now I kind of want this movie to get made. <laughs> but that, that list would be too long. So we'll, uh, let's just leave it there. All right. Well, maybe we'll come back at some point and ask you if you come up with any particularly good ones. Um, as for me, you know, I was a really big fan of the Milton Bradley 1990 board game, The Little Mermaid, uh, which, which you move a, a fish around uh, the ocean. And there's all these colorful characters like there are these two evil eels and there's a, a mermaid and a prince. The mermaid actually ascends towards the prince over the course of the board game while you're moving your piece around on the board game because you're playing the fish, right? The fish is the protagonist and uh, there's sort of all these events that are happening around you. I just felt like it would be cool to take that board game, which has such so many great story elements, and make that into a movie, right? A movie where maybe maybe it didn't focus on the fish because the fish is kind of boring, but maybe it focused on like the mermaid and the prince uh, and, and the sort of diva-ish octopus lady that's present in a lot of the packaging materials. I'm not sure. Um, no, you guys, do you know that? I'm kind of, I'm joking, obviously, and it's not really all that funny because there are a lot of movie board board game adaptations of movies um and the idea of making a movie adaptation of a board game adaptation of a movie we got there with the producers right where it went from like a movie to a musical and back to a movie but we haven't gotten there with board games yet do any of you guys play any of those like uh you know sort of pop culture licensed property board games when you were growing up well, no, but Pete, when you were starting that, I, I thought the joke was going to be that the Milton Bradley board game was not based on the Disney movie Little Mermaid, but they just like cheaped out and went with like the uh, what public domain Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. Oh no, it's based on Aladdin. It's not based on Little Mermaid. No, no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yes. At the end, your mer, your mermaid uh, fall, your mermaid piece gets knocked over into the ocean and dissolves into sea foam uh, at, upon the ultimate failure of her all of her Aww. efforts. <laughs> But she gets a nice little statue. Um, but I had four little sisters, and we played a whole bunch of these sorts of games. I had the Dinosaurs board game based on the TGIF show with the Not the Mama Baby. Uh, and you moved around on that, and there was they were pop-ups. It was like a phase where there were these elaborate pop-ups, and there were kind of three-dimensional elements. And it, what Settlers Catan did with difficulty and complexity of rules, these board games did with, like, the difficulty and complexity of the physical board. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was actually kind of an exciting time. You had stuff like Dizzy Dizzy Dinosaur, where you had not only um, 3D, but, like, motorized components of the board game. But I feel like basically what happens is video games came along and put paid to that, and... Uh, you know, and that that line of development in the in the tabletop game sort of had to stop. It, it's kind of interesting to imagine a universe where that's just the beginning, and you end up with like basically World of Warcraft, all with like little rock'em sock'em robots running around on a giant table in somebody's rec room. But that's yeah. not the world we live in. It's not that dissimilar to what they play in Star Wars, right? But it, that's not quite the same. But uh, that's certainly a future George Lucas foresaw that did not come to pass. Um, but yeah, so so there, I, I will read. I will read some of Jordan's ideas. I will read uh, Eli Roth's Mousetrap, 
an evil serial killer dispatches his nubile victims through a series of brightly colored plastic death traps. The trap is set. Here comes the net, starring Carrie Elways as the man in the rub-a-dub tub. Excellent. I love Carrie Elways. I think he would be perfect in that role. Uh, and and I, they have... Uh, Lars von Trier's Checkers is a special one. I'll just leave you with that. We won't go into it. They're great. They're great explanations. We'll post a link in the show notes. You can go through and read it. Vintage overthinking it, people. Vintage overthinking it. So before we move on to the John Wicking of the evening, uh, I would like to plug a couple things that we're doing over here on overthinking. I shouldn't just say plug. It's so cynical. I should say that I should talk about things that I'm excited that are happening and that I hope that you're also excited that are happening. Uh, ben, of course, is the MC of our Final Fantasy VI book club slash video game club. Uh, ben, how's it going so far? It's, it's been going great. We've been having some really good conversations. We are uh, well into uh, our second week of... Uh, of the book club here, and uh, if you go on the forums, uh, Shana has posted some great questions that I hope everybody uh, that's playing along with the club will respond to and give us some stuff to bounce off. Yeah, I mean, we're probably nearing the kind of end of the window where you could catch up with the club, right? Unless you're like a really hardcore grinder of these JRPGs, like you could probably catch up with the club if you started now, right? And like and played like sort of two weeks to catch up with you guys. Uh, but but if it's if you wait any longer, it's probably going to be pretty hard to catch what parts of the game you guys are talking about. I would wager, right? I think that's right. I think the number yeah. is somewhere between like thirty and forty hours to complete it, supposedly. So you'd be having to log some serious hours uh, between now and uh, the end of the book club to catch up. Though we are taking a week off for Thanksgiving to give people uh, some extra time to get to the finish before we do our last week. So you know you can get your studying in then. Awesome, excellent. I do love that game and played it many times myself. So um, you know. It is not the least pleasant experience to binge on Final Fantasy VI slash Final Fantasy III. Awesome. And I also would love to uh, call upon, ask, request, beg, plead. Not plead or beg. It's a good thing. You would enjoy it. It's worth your while. To subscribe to the free Overthinking It newsletter, our email newsletter. This past week we talked about Marcel the Shell, the return of Marcel the Shell, which is a very exciting time if you know who Marcel the Shell is. And I think a bunch of you do. And then we also talked about some fun, uh, some other pop culture music stuff in the previous weeks. And we had some stuff about charades. Every week, it's uh, well. Now it's every week. It took. It was a little bit of a hiccup getting started, but now every week it's a it's exclusive uh, subscriber only analysis and and some back and forth, maybe some discussion of a particular topic. Uh, just plug your email address in on the front page of Overthinking It. You can get on the newsletter. It's real easy. You can still are in time for the next one, and uh, it's a fun time. And it's not very spammy. It's actually very sincere. All right. Great, excellent. Other than that, I think that that's all the plugging that we need to do, all of the boasting of our various endeavors. Uh, can so I find I, some social media? Oh, well, of course, Mark, yes, because it's a wonderful day today. It's, it's, was, was it today or was it yesterday? Yes, today, uh, yes, Sunday, today. October 26, 2014, oh, as, as we're recording this, yes. uh, is the 30th anniversary of The Terminator. You might have heard about it. It's a film. It's about The Terminator. And we love it here at Overthinking It. By we, I mostly mean I, but I think the rest <laughs> of us also share that enthusiasm to some degree, if not quite the uh, insane, obsessive degree that I have it. Um, anyway, all of this to say that on social media, on Facebook in particular, um, we have been sharing uh, articles and media from our back catalog, our extensive back catalog of Overthinking It, about The Terminator. And if you're not following Overthinking It on Facebook and Twitter, you're missing out on a lot of stuff, besides our user banter. We do a lot of surfacing old stuff from the back catalog. Uh, we have been doing this for six, coming on seven years now, and so we've written a lot of articles about a lot of stuff, and it's not very easy to find it on the site uh, if you go to overthinkingit.com and click around. Uh, we are trying to address that in, in the next edition of Overthinking It, but uh, absent that, um, you should subscribe to our social media so you can see old stuff that we wrote. 
because we like to share the old stuff uh, because that means that we have to write less new stuff. No, that's not true. But we like to share the old stuff because it's awesome, and you should read it too if, in case you missed it. Well, I think the, the, one of the big reasons we like to share the old stuff is that just there's so much writing on so many pop culture topics that – Things keep coming back. Like our culture right now is one that's revisiting and re-examining and reissuing, you know, a lot of old ideas and a lot of classic ideas, a lot of ideas that I wouldn't even think of as old for me. But of course, I'm getting old. So then by the transitive property, they become old. Uh, but but in a culture that is so self-consciously reinventing itself from its kind of previous substance so many times so rapidly. Uh, the stuff that we've been working on for the past six years is surprisingly relevant. So, uh, uh, And there's just a huge breadth of subject matter on yeah, it. So. I'd say that people keep asking if these articles are coming back. If our, if our content's coming back. And you know what? It's back. It's back. It's back. I'm back. <laughs> oh, John Wick. John Wick was so great. John Wick was so awesome. It's so sad it lost to the Ouija movie. The Ouija board movie. Well, for all I know, the Ouija board movie is good. But we let's let us commence upon our discussion of John Wick, Keanu Reeves, fifty-year-old action hero. Sure doesn't look fifty. Going around. Uh, I mean, Mark, what do you think we should talk about first? Should we give a little summary for those people who haven't seen John Wick? John Wick spoilers from here on out. Um, that's the most spoilerable movie. Not really. Like they're, they're oh. not like incredible plot twists where it's revealed that um, uh, the dog that dies in the first scene uh, comes back to life, <laughs> toting machine guns, <laughs> wreaking vengeance on on Russian mobsters. I, I would kind of like to see that though because that was super sad when the dog. Died. Yeah, I, I got oh, a lot man. of things. I got a lot of things to say about dogs. Right. I'm a recent dog. Recent recently became a dog owner, and I got a lot oh, of really? things to say about dogs. Yeah. Um. So uh, bracketing that aside. Um, yeah, let's 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 give a brief synopsis of the movie for those who haven't seen it. Um, John Wick, uh, the the titular character of this movie, played by Keanu Reeves, uh, is a retired assassin. I guess is the best uh, word to describe his former profession. Um, he's in retirement. His his wife died. It's really tragic, and his wife left him this cute dog. And um, and and Keanu Reeves is like, you know, yeah, I have this dog to grieve with, and I'm moving on with my life. Chance encounter with a Russian mobster. Russian mobster doesn't realize that he's a uh, super, uh, uh, super elite hitman assassin. Uh, decides to steal his car and kill his dog, and that sets off a whole slew of events. Uh, wacky action, uh, not so much wacky, but just really stylistic and intense and bloody action in which Keanu Reeves wreaks incredible vengeance on the Russian mobsters who killed his dog, who is his, basically his, his proxy wife, his memories of his wife, and stole the car. The car actually doesn't really come back in a, in a significant way, but really, this is about the dog. I got a lot of things to say about dogs, but we'll save that for later. How's that for a synopsis of the movie? Did I leave anything out? No, I think I think that's good. I think the, some of the things that the movie does really well, and I'll ask Ben too because Ben also saw it. But some of the things the movie does really well is: a) you don't know that John Wick is an assassin when the movie starts, right? And you discover, and the characters discover, sort of the the high price that is going to be paid for this uh, transgression, right? For yeah. when this it's the son of a, a son of a major mobster played by he of the terrible decisions, uh, Alfie Allen of Theon, Theon Greyjoy fame. Um, you know, he, he decides he's going to mess with this guy and then he's going to break into the guy's house and, and steal the guy's car and kill his dog. You just think that he's just sort of a successful guy who has a wife. You do know from the very, very first scene that he does get bloody and he does like – there's like an in race kind of scene where like – although it's like, you know, not really medius but whatever, similar enough, uh, where he's like he crawls out of a car all bloodied up. So you know that he gets involved in some sort of shady business, but you don't really know who he is or why. And the movie does the title of the movie doesn't really tell you why, and you find out through a series of really fun reveals 
uh, who like basically everybody when they find out that it's John Wick is really really scared and or just sort of like they're so scared they're so horrified that they're just sort of dead right they just can't respond right it's like oh oh is the is the answer when someone tells you that John Wick is coming to kill you the answer is oh because there's nothing that you can do about it. All right, and uh, and that's and that's kind of like this uh, part of the way that the tension and anticipation in the movie is built up. Um, the, the the wife doesn't just give him the dog. The wife like sets up a kind of post posthumous dog capsule, wherein after she dies, a love note and a dog in a crate are like delivered to Keanu Reeves by a posthumous dog delivery service of some kind. Right, and so he's like, "Oh, I'm grieving for my dead wife. I'm so sad." And it's like, "Here, my love, is this puppy that I want you to love." And it's like, "Oh, he's so adorable." Um, but yeah, no, you, yep, I was kind of wondering about that. Can you just ship a dog to somebody and just like <laughs> – can you just like send it to them and the delivery guy just leaves and you just own a dog now? Like, that's what's going to happen. I, I think in this – there are a lot of professional services in this world. Right? <laughs> that's we, don't, we don't typically think of calling up like you know um, the dead body cleanups. Yes. I'm yeah. willing to believe that there's a, there's a, a sweet puppy delivery service in this world. Right. I, mean, I really hope that uh, – I really hope that in the real world you can't just uh, send dogs to people because, like, if so, I've been wasting a lot of time having pizzas delivered to my enemies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If they are so cute, how can they stay mad at you, Jordan? Just send them such a cute dog. and They, they, can, never, they can never stay mad at you. Oh, my goodness. Now, there isn't, like as – far, as, as far as I know, it isn't a particularly brutal dog execution. I mean, I guess it's kind of brutal. The dog gets hit with a club, right? Uh, and that kills a dog. It's brutal. But like, it's not graphic. But it is no, brutal. it's not graphic. That's true. It's brutal, but it's not graphic. Um, we were reviewing before the – Ben, you want to talk about the website you were talking to us about before we oh, started yeah. the podcast? <laughs> so there's the website. Uh, I, I don't know the URL, but it's the, the, web, the concept of the website is doesthedogdie.com. And it's just yeah, a catalog of movies telling you whether or not the pet dies in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, it has a little graphical aid. There's a little icon. Right. The dog's either all happy or the dog is kind of sad, meaning it was seriously injured but survived. Or the dog is crying with a gray face, meaning the dog is killed. And it looks like at least at least a solid 100 or 200 movies are rated in this fashion in this, in this one. But yeah. But yeah, so Keanu, the, the dog dies and Keanu Reeves goes after him. Now, I guess the I mean, big question – yeah, go ahead. It's interesting that it's the dog because I feel like a lesser movie would have made it the wife – like that's yeah. the standard yes, movie yes, that's the standard much. revenge movie move is that it's the wife or the girlfriend or the daughter that is killed and i'm obviously deliberately using all female names because in these movies it's almost always gendered but this movie is interesting because uh the wife dies of very tragic but very natural causes like that that's you, you mentioned it briefly but i just wanted to flag that for the people that haven't seen the movie that it's it, it's not your typical one of these movies where the wife dies just from a disease, and it's very sad, and that's why he's sad at the beginning of the movie, which is just an interesting choice that I, I, I really enjoyed in the movie. Yeah, yeah. They don't even go into it in too much detail, right? They're just sort of right. like, I know I've been sick for a long time, and my time is coming, and all that stuff, and it's pretty sad. Um, there's a lot that's kind of left unspoken. There's a lot of silence in this movie, but there's also a lot of, like, techno. There's a lot of, like, uh, kind of trance-influenced well, techno. I mean, the, 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 story, the movie's lean in its storytelling. Right? Yeah. It gives you only just barely – just the right amount of backstory that you need to understand to be sad when the wife dies and when the dog dies because that was so sad. Yeah. I, I, I kind of saw this movie as a thought experiment of how low can you make the stakes and still care and want him to kill all of the mobsters. And I think this, this is <laughs> exploring the floor of that because I can't remember which director, but some director in the last five years or so has basically said that like, oh, if you want to make an action movie like – 
you know, the whole world has to be on the line or people won't care. And John yeah. Wick is like exhibit A in the case against that. It's it like, was, no, like it, it was, can be about a dog and, and people will still care. I think that was Damon Lindelof. It might have been. Right, a screenwriter, right. notoriously of Prometheus and slightly less notoriously of uh, Star Trek and Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah I, yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, and I, I remember this. And I mean, you could say it's a counter argument, but at the same time, this was not a particularly, especially successful movie at the box office, I mean, right? That's, that's like, true. people kind of didn't really go to see this movie in the numbers that we might hope that they would have, right? Well, well I mean, um, there's an issue with expectations as well. Like, I'm not quite sure if this was expected to be, like, you know, 100 million opening or anything like that. Right, so right, right. Uh, this did 14 million, which I think is second at the box office. And mm-hmm. apparently, most people were expecting it to do seven or eight million. So it like nearly doubled oh. its expectations. Oh, wow. So, this, so I'm, I'm what, what the issue is that as I, my expectations for a Keanu Reeves action flick are too high. That like the, the expectations for this movie were very reasonable and very modest. Uh, even though it has Bafo action star, superhero, Matrix, Neo guy, Keanu Reeves in it, who I guess hasn't really made a particularly thrilling movie in a long time but uh <laughs> people you you seem to have forgotten that there were two other matrix movies let him live in that ignorance Jordan, that just, stock has been sold that equity has been liquidated yes i have i have spent my my keanu capital uh and uh so you so you so it actually did really well so because so this movie, one of the ways to approach talking about this movie is to talk about it in the context of Edge of Tomorrow, right? Which was the other movie that I would compare to this movie in the sense of it being like an aging action star pretty much at the top of his form in a movie that doesn't – that is an adaptation of something but not an adaptation of something that's really ubiquitous that everybody knows about. So it feels new. It feels inventive. Uh, the movie is challenging. It's interesting. It's fun. It's exciting. It doesn't make compromises on being entertaining uh, for the sake of being atmospheric and it doesn't make con- uh, sacrifices in terms of what it's trying to present to make it you know, to make it more marketable. Really, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like it's a very elegant combination of all these different sort of motivations and it goes out there and then like it kind of doesn't – smash right and like all these people are complaining like everything's an adaptation of something or everything's like a sequel of something like this is a movie that i haven't really seen before and it didn't do as good but you're saying oh no it actually did pretty good so this is, might be more in the line of riddick right where it's like oh no what you got to do is you just got to really set very very reasonable expectations for these movies for these r-rated action films and you got to make them on a pretty lean budget because they're just not going to get a ton of uh a ton of business Right, so, so that's uh, I mean, because it's in a bunch of traditions. This movie's in that tra- in the in the in the in the day after tomorrow, in the edge of tomorrow, not day after tomorrow, edge of tomorrow tradition. It's in the um, <clears throat> it's in the uh, the, the Riddick tradition. tradition. It's in the what? The Taken tradition of the, the Taken uh, tradition. The yes, Avengers, that's a huge yeah. one. I mean, did you get any guys want to address where this movie lies, like with re- with relation to Taken, the uh, Liam Neeson uh, franchise of of abduction, abduscontment? For which there was a preview, Taken 3. There was a, did you guys see the preview for Taken 3 before your movie? Oh, I did not. Is that how, is that how we're pronouncing it, by the way? It's not TAC 3N? <laughs> TAC-N? TAC-N? No, yeah, it's TAC 3N, right? Is that T-A-K, how it is? T-A-K. Oh, T-A-K. Of course, it's not TAC. I would call it Taken 3. I'm ashamed to admit I actually have not seen any of the Taken movies. I'm very familiar with the whole particular set of skills speech on the phone and i love me some liam neeson don't get me wrong uh but i've not seen taken jordan can you go into the t- i know you didn't see you didn't see john wick i know but you've seen the taken movies so or at least you know about them can you give us a little bit of a, of a rundown from your perspective of like what makes the taken movies interesting uh and like why it's something that's worth talking about 
or at least we're seen. <laughs> they're they're competently made. Like they're, they're <laughs> the highest of praises. The highest of praises. They have uh, they have excellent pacing. Liam Neeson is a really good actor, um, and like and also a good physical actor, um, which like. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're action stars and action stars, right? They're old Steven Seagal action stars and young Steven Seagal action stars. And Liam Neeson can, like, can kind of move very capably, and he's called upon to do that a lot. Um, beyond that, I don't think that there's, like, anything so thematically relevant. They play the, uh, the woman in distress plot very, very straight. Uh, the enemies are Eastern European mafia types, which is an interesting kind of picture of where Hollywood's head is at right now. Um, I don't know, it's notable in the fact that Taken 2 is so, so very closely based on Taken 1. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've only seen Taken 2, so I haven't seen Taken 1, but I feel like having seen Taken 2 that I've seen Taken 1 (laughs) from what people have described to me. Um, And and I remember that Liam Neeson initially refused to do Taken 3 because he's like, how many times can people be taken? I'll only do Taken 3 if nobody's taken. There's too many times. It's like, oh, they're taken again? Jesus Christ. What I will say to Liam Neeson, Taker's going to take, 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 take. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I guess I I think Jordan really hit on something there, and that's something that John Wick does also um, match up with, which is that... um, you know, Keanu Reeves could be an old Steven Seagal action hero in this movie. Like, Keanu Reeves could be, I'm 50 years old, I made Bill and Ted a long time ago, I made the Matrix movies a long time ago, uh, and now I'm making an action movie, and you're going to see sort of close-ups of my face and close-ups of my hands, and then stunt doubles, really obviously, and it's going to be pretty pretty obvious that I'm not doing things that are kinetic and dynamic and interesting. Whereas in John Wick, Keanu Reeves moves like a, a much, much younger than his 50 years. Um, and maybe it is Maybe it is stunt doubles. Maybe it is CGI. Whatever it is, John Wick is an explosive, kinetic figure in this movie. Um, I mean, an artistic one, one that moves with grace, right? And one that definitely has a distinct physical style yeah. that's immediately he, he, identifiable. He knows kung fu. <laughs> he doesn't necessarily <laughs> seem to know kung fu that much. Well, Ben, go ahead. While we're talking about the stunts, uh, I know this movie, uh, part of it is it's kind of a, an ode to practical special effects. I know that they, they went out of their way to use a lot of practical special effects in this movie uh, because the director is actually uh, Keanu Reeves' stuntman from oh. the Matrix movies and some other stuff. Uh, that's, but that's really the connection. That's really it interesting. explains a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could see some of the similar moves too. But I noticed, I noticed not so much kung fu as there were a lot of um, wrestling kind of moves. It seemed like there were a lot of arm bars and a lot of grappling. Right? I mean, am I getting that term right? Arm bar? I have to look that yeah, up. Yeah, when I said he knows kung fu, that was less of a um, specific reference to the specific martial art of kung fu, and more generally to Keanu Reeves' uh, physicality and, and combat skills, um, which he, of course, learned by jacking into the Matrix. Right. right, right, of course, of course. I mean, if, I'm, I'm going to stick with If it's this. any particular martial arts, it's like the gun kata from Equilibrium. <laughs> well, Equilibrium, another notable movie where a killing spree is set off by the murder of a puppy dog, right? Oh, that's right. true. Yeah, that's There's the, another one? What? Like, <laughs> oh, you know, you've never seen Equilibrium. No, I've not seen Equilibrium. Oh, yeah, Equilibrium is, is it's like John Wick, but it's like 
much, much less committed to representing anything like an existence we've ever understood ourselves or lived. Uh, it is a dystopian future in which emotion is illegal, and the bans on emotion are enforced by a, a class of clerics who are trained in the martial art of gun kata, which I can only describe as the art of shooting whilst not being shot oneself. Uh, it involves... Uh, spinning around and jumping and shooting guns and kicking people and whatnot. Uh, and his chief practitioners are Christian Bale and, uh, and is it Tay Diggs? It's, that Tay is the Diggs. Other, it's Tay Diggs is the other major. And Sean Bean early Sean who gets Bean. killed. Because that's exactly. <laughs> and so and like people take a people take a drug to like not feel emotions. And if people are found hoarding emotionally resonant materials or dodging on their drugs, then uh, the clerics come and they kill you. And there's a scene where uh, – uh, Christian Bale is called upon to kill a puppy that's been hoarded by emotion violators, and uh, he instead kills every other human being in the room. So, and that starts off his like quest for vengeance. Uh, that's that's odd though, because if you think about it, like killing a puppy is the biggest emotion trigger of all, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> couldn't couldn't you? Isn't he arguably just enforcing the law? Like, if you're put in a situation where you're asked to kill a dog, the only way to like get out of that emotional hand grenade is by killing literally everyone else. See, like that's a really interesting that's a really interesting outlook on it. It's not the one that Equilibrium takes on emotion, and it's also <laughs> <laughs> well because you're ta- what you're talking about is like continence, right? You're talking about emotional repression via self control. And via like control of, of circumstances. Right? No, like, I'm just talking about like uh, things that make me sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying like, okay, if it's against the law for me to feel, feel emotions, then I should avoid creating circumstances that cause me to feel things strongly. Right. Whereas like this one, it's more like drug yourself into a stupor and sort of like always stare straight ahead. Right. And the idea that you would even be able to it seems like being understanding yourself well enough to be capable of making a judgment as to whether a given act ordered by the totalitarian state would cause you to feel emotion, like that level of self-awareness seems to be precluded by the existence of a totalitarian state that bans emotions, right? It's like – it seems to be that it would be hard to develop that level of facility with your emotion, that level of understanding, and that people are rendered kind of emotionally juvenile through the whole process. But anyway, that's all equilibrium, and John Wick is certainly related to it in certain things that happen but uh the character of john wick is more emotionally uh more emotionally textured i suppose i mean what do you guys think of keanu's performance he goes a little nick cage in the middle there's like a wonderful little nick cage uh monologue that he gives you know mark you were quoting it before um you know the one i'm talking about right oh, oh the one where he says basically like people keep asking if i'm back that's when I'm back, and I, I don't know what quite to say, but let me tell you, I'm back! Yeah, and he goes crazy, and he, he yells and screams, out. and he flips out. Um, he totally cages it up. He finds his national treasure. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, just, just to address that square on, like, that clearly was a meta statement on Keanu Reeves', car- uh, Keanu Reeves career arc, was it not? I mean, it's in the commercial, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, like, the, one of the few things I knew about this movie, whereas this, this thing where Keanu Reeves says, I'm back! He's very emphatically saying that he is back, and I was like, "Oh, that's very meta." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, like I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, uh, did that. You know, pioneered the meta, self-aware "I'm back" in all of his movies, <laughs> <laughs> Last Action Hero, and Terminator Two and Three, and all this other stuff. Um, coming back and whatnot, but yeah, no, that was totally. But it was also it was less. It was more emotionally demonstrative than I, I'm used to seeing Keanu Reeves in movies. Keanu Reeves is a very reserved guy a lot of the time, right? 
Like, uh, yeah, oh, like he, you know, he 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 comes out right off the bat, straight off the bat, with the the, the torrent of tears, right uh, when he's when he's grieving for his wife, and uh, he sees the dog there. Um, like that was uh, that was some that was some great acting there. I mean, that might have been a, a meta reference to Sad Keanu there as well, <laughs> but I, I don't think that was the case. No, no. That's just I mean, <laughs> like liking to uh, uh, enjoying references to Sad Keanu because it's yeah. kind of funny. Ben, let's get more of your take on this movie. There's so many different angles to approach it. Is what what resonated the most for you when you were watching this movie? What what got your overthinking its circuits firing? I think it was just how pretty this movie was. Mm. Like every single shot of this movie was just like in love with the thing that it was shooting. Um, and I don't mean like guns, though it often shot guns in a way that made it love guns. Um, but like so much of this movie was shot like a car commercial. Um, or a whiskey commercial or a commercial for gun silencers or something along those lines. But like so much of this commercial was so much of this movie was just a pretty, pretty shot um, that I really appreciated the whole movie. Even the kind of more subtle scenes had this, had some great framing and they also had a lot of different play with color in a lot of different scenes that I thought was pretty entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I I could also go. We could go through. We could go through the car commercial cars right. that are in the movie, right? So there's there's three big cars in the movie, right? Well, there's there's four uh, that I that I think of notably. There's the um, there. Well, first there's the 1969 Mustang, right? That, that right. Keanu Reeves has, right? Which is his uh, his baby, right? That's the car that he takes care of. That's his classic car that he loves, and he he copes with his rage at the loss of his wife uh, by driving it to like an airport tarmac where he just does burnouts and drifts while screaming and crying, right? Like, and that's like his form of therapy, <laughs> right? Uh, there you go. Um, and then, uh, then in, he then loses it because it's stolen from him, right, by Theon Greyjoy and his associates. And then he gets a Chevy Chevelle SS, uh, I think I think it was an SS because I think I think it said you know it says the uh, the SS says SS on the front of the car and it, the the way that the hood works out and the racing stripe. If you go if you look up the Chevy Chevelle, we'll put the Chevy Chevelle link in the show notes. You can kind of see the history of that car. Um, I think it's a name that when you hear it, people get kind of dismissive. Uh, the Chevelle less so than the SS. SS still has some equity and kind of like the Chevy lineup as a as a term that they use for sports sedans, V8 sedans, and whatnot. But you can see the the uh, it's about the same year, like 1969, 1970. That sort of Dukes of Hazard muscle car profile with the double racing stripe down the hood um, is the way that the uh, if you ever played. Uh, Age of Empires 2, and you could do the cheat code where you get the car that blew up everybody else's buildings. That's what this car looks like, right? This, this muscle car that he gets. And then he trades, and then that car, I don't know what happens to that car. Um, I don't remember what happened. Oh, it gets jumped, it gets tipped over and shoved off of a thing? No, there's the other one. But then the, the people in the Continental give him a new uh, Dodge Charger, which to me seemed like a big step down from a 1969 Ford Mustang and like a 1970 Chevy SS. Uh, but maybe that's just me. Might have been a Hellcat. I actually, I actually tried to reach out over Facebook to the social media people for John Wick because I wasn't sure whether the Dodge Charger in the movie was <laughs> the Hellcat trim, which is the one that has more than 700 horsepower that they're doing now, which is ridiculous. But, uh, but it was definitely like Dodge was like, we want to be we want to be. It was interesting that it was Ford, Chevy, and Dodge. He he drove one from You're each right. of the big. Mu- you know, there wasn't an Oldsmobile, but one of the, each of the big muscle car manufacturers. And it, and it was so. This was not like Transformers, where like Chevy is the 
car make and or like Die Hard, Live Free or Die Hard, not Live Free or Die Hard. Um, uh, a Good Day to Die Hard, where everything was a Mercedes, right? Like, um, and this one, it was like he jumped to the different American auto manufacturers uh, throughout the movie that's and a, ending on the. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, that did not cross my mind uh, when as I was watching the movie, and I, and I was certainly attuned to the to the vehicles uh, coming across, but I, I didn't think about the, the, the branding aspect of it. Um, and which makes me think that, well, um, I don't know, did the uh, car manufacturers decide that like an already Keanu Reeves action movie was not going to be a lucrative enough product placement thing that they all just kind of pass. And I was like, eh, whatever, drive what we want. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder who supplied the cars. Like maybe the cars were supplied by like a classic car dealership. Or something, you know? Was it an issue of how do we get these cars because this is a cheap movie that we don't have a lot of money to pay for things, and and we need to get cool cars? Is that the issue? Um, I mean, like, yeah. this was not a cheap movie to be clear. Like this was just not an expensive movie. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, what was the what's the John Wick? The John Wick budget was, uh, gosh, um, I'm, I'm like I'm like googling it real fast to try to find what the budget find to find the budget of this movie was. Um, I can't find it on um, on uh, on Wikipedia all that fast, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it doesn't look cheap. But anyway, yeah, but you would think that somebody would want to have at least, if not exclusive, then they would want to have like prominently featured car in the movie, right? I guess I don't know. Right. Well, and you would think that would be exclusive, and I don't know how these deals are done, but one would think the whole point of getting a deal like that is so that yours is the only cars that get in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so maybe they didn't do product placement, which is interesting because yeah. the cars are very prominently featured, like they're. They're shot in a way that is showing off the car. Yeah, they are fetish- uh, fetishized. Fetishized, yes. Oh, yeah, totally. And they're also all muscle cars, too. Well, except right. for the fourth car, which is the Chevy Tahoe, which is the car driven <laughs> by evil people. Evil people drive Chevy Tahoes. <laughs> <laughs> they're not Suburbans. They're Tahoes because it's, you know, you got you to gotta go camping after you take over the world, right? Or after you run guns and drugs and all the prostitution rings in New York City, you need to get out to the Adirondacks and bring well, out your— Well, <laughs> okay, so, so uh, the Chevy Tahoe, to me, right, is, is the car of the comfortable class. Who needs uh, some, like a lot of room for whatever reason, right? And I, I associate this also with my uh, my life in New York, where you sort of look around and see um, chauffeurs for uh, rich people. Basically, mm-hmm. like those are often uh, Chevy Tahoes. They are all black. They are all tinted, exactly like the gangster cars in um, in this movie. It, it is it, it is a car for someone who is done running around, who doesn't um, need the muscle car. Uh, for whatever reason, right? For the thrills, for uh, to, to attract women, or anything like that. Um, and it's, it's it's for someone who's settled and established and is comfortable and wants to remain comfortable. And and which I think is an interesting statement, and also is connected to um, what, what I what I found to be an interesting sort of use of the gangster trope of the established old gangster, um, who, Vigo, I think was his name, uh, and uh, the, that established gangster having a ne'er do well son who doesn't understand the gangster code. Right, he doesn't drive. He isn't chauffeured around in Chevy Tahoes comfortably. Um, he is well running around New York City in a towel because he's been chased <laughs> by John Wick. <laughs> yeah. um, right, but that's right, just right. like a, that. That was a long digression to talk about the cult, specific cultural re- resonance of the black tented window Chevy Tahoe, and also kind of a, 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 an excuse to segue to this topic of like tropes of revenge in gangster movies that are used in this movie and to the extent to which they are self-aware or not. And I, my general sense was that, yes, they are quite self-aware, um, but I was curious to hear your, your take on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me was just that they were Tahoes and not Suburbans because I associate the Suburban more with that kind of thing. Um, 
I guess, or Escalades. Escalade is the gangster car, right? Um, but yeah, I guess yeah, you make a very good point when you say it's the car of the comfortable class. Like the gangsters in John Wick are there is a, there is an idea of wealth in in John Wick. Like think about John Wick's house, right? It's it's very well designed and it's very uh, it's very like pared down, right? The design of John Wick's apartment or house is his house, right? Is uh, it's pretty simple. I mean, there's a lot that he has a lot of nice furniture. It's also very nice modern, stuff. which contrasts yeah. to the interiors you see of the Russian mobsters and the Willem Dafoe uh, interior as well, which is dark and like you know lots of wood old yeah, world yeah. kind of thing going on where john wicks is very like you know modern and sleek and, and well, it's, it's worth noting that pretty much everyone in this movie is part of the comfortable class mm-hmm. like yeah. it's even including the because uh, you, you mentioned it briefly if it, but there's the the continental which is this yeah. you know luxury hotel where all the assassins get to stay and it's a very nice hotel and which is interesting because the assassins are presumably criminals and not like mob bosses they are low relatively low level criminals but because they're these elite assassins they get to stay in you know comfortable accommodations and pay with gold coins and go to their special club yeah the gold uh, coins are a nice touch and yes. like now that i'm thinking about like it's well it, the the hotel is called the continental and that continent is not referring to north america right, right. <laughs> well well here's the interesting thing right what comes to mind here is the role of lance reddick's character right lance reddick from from lost from the wire uh daniels from the wire who plays the the concierge the front desk guy at the continental right um and he has a is it a caribbean accent that he has in this movie or is it an african accent i think it's a caribbean accent right um and he's he's so well put together and this is a guy whose just face is so well sculpted you know and that, that part, that's part of what informed his part of daniels and the wire as the side of the kind of the the police leader who was above the fray, right? Because and he has this sort of like very refined look to himself, right? Like very, very, very much in self-control, right? Um, and this idea that he is just as elegant, right? He's an elegant man and he's just as elegant as the surroundings around him, right? But where does he fit in the hierarchy, right? Is he a Caribbean immigrant? Like, are, is this, are we to believe that this is almost sort of like a colonial kind of establishment, right? Like an mm-hmm. old resort in the Bahamas or something where like, uh, you know, it, it harkens back to a previous day, um, you know, where, where the, uh, the white-shoed British would interact with the, with the locals who would be speaking, you know, in a very... Yeah. Very which, gentle. Which, by the way, I feel like you see often in James Bond movies, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, at that point, it was still in effect. You know, like, uh, I guess, I mean, right, like, Dr. No is, uh, was made in uh, 1962, at which point there were still large chunks of the British Empire still around. Um, but, yeah, totally. It's like Monaco. Monaco is like a huge location of that sort, right, of that kind of, that kind of elegance, um, right, where it's like uh, – Although Monaco doesn't have the racial charge thing, but just that idea of the kind of stateliness and where, where servants who are there are kind of like imported from various areas around the world, right? Or like um, the manservant in a Bond villain movie or whatever is a specific sort of person. Um, but, but you get the sense like, is that guy rich? The guy who works the front desk at the Continental? You get the sense that he's richer than a regular hotel guy, right? Or, or is he? You know, he, he, he is sort of like his experience independently from working at the Continental would probably qualify as subaltern for the hegemonic discourse of this movie. Sure. Like the, the people the, – the way that this movie works uh, is that that guy's life outside of him being at the Continental isn't really relevant uh, for the story that this movie is trying to tell, which sounds like more of an incrimination than it's meant to be because it's a movie that's very pared down and very symbolic. Um, but yeah, the comfort is, is not something that you can just sort of dismiss. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, stylishness. That's a that's an interesting question. Sort of stylishness. What do you guys think about? Um, can you appreciate stylishness if it's tied to class in a way that isn't doesn't sort of like make you feel bad for being less classy, right? Than the people who are in the movie. Like, what's your interaction with stylish, classy people in movies? Do they make you aspire to be better? Do they make you feel bad for being worse? Do they make you feel good for the degree that you're better than the people around you? Like, when you see John Wick, do you want to be John Wick? Do you, is John Wick a power fantasy? That's one of the questions that's been mm. lying with me for a lot of this, is like, yeah. to what yeah, degree yeah, yeah, yeah. is John Wick a power fantasy? And what degree is it more of a, like, sort of, is he more tale? of a... Yeah, he's, is he more of like a person that you're supposed to aspire to be like, or is he more of a force of nature? And the movie is about the other people who have to interact with him in various ways. Um, well, you know, is, I mean, is he? Go ahead. I think in the certainly post the dog dying, he is a force of nature. He is just on a single course, and nothing will will send him aside. But it's interesting that you know, for all of his power, he can't even like stop some home invaders from killing his dog and taking his car. Because they ambush him in the middle of the night. And, of course, that's partially because he, at that point, he's out of the game. He hasn't literally broken open the chest of all of his weapons and, you know, get his power ring back or or whatever (laughs) it is. (laughs) Because because there's definitely – it's interesting. He's not violent at all uh, in the beginning of the movie until he smashes open his basement and gets his assassin stuff. Uh, But so so there is this idea of the limits of violence uh, kind of embedded in the the movie's DNA that – a movie like Taken or a movie like I'm thinking Man on Fire is another one of these where violence actually gets the protagonist what they want, which is they get their daughter back or their daughter like their daughter like figure back. But here he's not really going for that kind of goal. So it's a power fantasy in the sense it's like, oh, man, he's a badass. He can kill anybody he wants, but he never actually accomp- there's not really a goal that he's trying to accomplish with all of that power. Yeah. Right. The, if there the, was a goal, yeah. I'd say that it's like trying to get the dog back. And so really? he, which he does at the end, right? Like he doesn't get the that exact dog back, but you know, what happened what, what the arc of the movie is like dog dies, sets him off on a murderous rampage and the movie ends with him getting a new dog. That but no, but here's the thing. Let's talk about the end of this movie because there are a number of really interesting complex beats at the end of this movie where I feel like Keanu Reeves's character just gets really makes some some interesting choices. I was thinking while I was watching the final, the fist fight between John Wick and uh, Russian mobster guy, whatever his name is, Vladimir or whatever, or whatever, whoever he is, when they're fighting, um, and this is what, it's like, it's the first time around, right? And, uh, well, there, so so there's the fist fight, and then the guy pulls out the knife, right? right? And then John Wick, uh, so, okay, so, so what you have to figure out is you have to figure out what's the role of Marcus in the movie, Right. So, the, the, so Marcus uh, Willem Dafoe character. Yeah. So Will. So for those of you who are still listening who haven't watched the movie, Willem Dafoe is another uh, assassin. One would think of the same or similar caliber to John Wick, but who seems to specialize in kind of long range sniper work. Uh, and he is hired as sort of Day of the Jackal style by the Russian guy to try to kill John Wick before John Wick kills his son uh, out of vengeance. And uh, and Marcus 
has the opportunity on several occasions to kill John Wick, but we've seen through sort of like terse interactions that they've had that they have some sort of professional or personal relationship, and it's not clear the extent of that relationship, and it's really not clear what it really means to Willem Dafoe's character. It's irrelevant what it happens, what it means to Keanu Reeves' character, because Keanu Reeves doesn't know that Marcus is hunting him, but there's a number of times where Marcus could kill John Wick and chooses not to. And then there's this point where John Wick has killed uh, the son, and he's pretty much ready to go. Like, he's pretty much good to stop, right? And then, he, and then, they, and then they jack Marcus, and that's when they finally raise the stakes, right? Mm. And, they're, and then that's when Keanu Reeves decides that he's really going to go all out for this, right? Um, so, okay. So the moment that I'm thinking of is the moment where the Russian guy has the knife and he's trying to stab Keanu. And Keanu looks at the Russian guy and then pulls the knife into his own stomach, right? Do you guys know what I'm ta- this moment that I'm talking about? Does he pull the knife into his own stomach? You mean uh, – oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah he like – it's, like like it's like a tactic to get the knife out of the guy's control. He stabs yeah. himself. Yeah. Oh, yes, oh it, okay. That's what you mean. Oh, okay. But at the same time, you also get the sense, well, what does John Wick have to live for? Right? Like, John, you, you sort of – you're watching Keanu Reeves' face. I think that there's kind of a realization of like, well, you know what? This is really all I've got at this point. You know, like even the people that I didn't know were my friends are dead. So I might as well just go all out and stab myself in order to. Mm. And he stabs himself in his pre existing wound where he was wounded earlier on. Right. And this whole thing that runs through the movie of like, you take these pills, your stitches will open, you will bleed, but you'll have full function. Right. And it's like full function. Which reminded me of Max Payne, the video game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Take the pills to to stay fully functional. Exactly. But but then it sort of thinks, well, what is a human being in the context of this world? In in the case of John Wick killing people, he's a function. Right. He's he's a he's a, a, a agent that conducts business and he does things and he's he's an economic figure he's a commercial figure he's a status figure um he's a capital figure uh but he's not really a person whose internal life should really bother us all that much except to the extent that if you kill his dog he's gonna kill your whole family um but uh but then it's like but counter reeves had found this other life right and the question i don't think the question is like him it's like he wants to get back to the dog is that he needs to decide that it, he wants to get another dog. And when he gives his big monologue about being back, right, he's telling you, like, he doesn't, he doesn't have any more hope. The hope is dead. Because it wasn't just a dog. It was a dog that was given to him by his wife as sort of this miraculous thing. And so I feel like when I was watching it and when John Wick, like, stabbed himself to disarm the Russian guy so that he'd get the knife and then kill him, um, he was doing it out of, like, a sense that he had nothing else to live for. And then it was when he finally crashes... Uh, the Chevy Tahoe and is rolling on the ground watching his wife on his Samsung Galaxy or whatever phone that paid money to be the one that Keanu Reeves' bloody hands are clutching. No, that was that was an iPhone, by the way. That was like, an iPhone. There's okay. no <laughs> Apple logo, I believe, like shown in this movie at all. Oh, okay, but it is an iPhone. Is yeah, what you're iPhone. saying? Yeah, for sure. Okay, fair enough. Um, but then, then he like he, something about watching that makes him kind of want to patch himself up. But he's at a veterinary hospital, right? And, and that he's using the facilities at the veterinary hospital. So you sort of think that he must have something going on regarding dogs and animals. Although it is kind of a stock thing for these sorts of assassins to go to veterinary hospitals in these. Sorts of movies, right? Also, it's, John Connor in Terminator Three, Rise of the exactly Rangers. perfect example, right? Is like that you get access to painkillers at veterinary hospitals, sort of, and stitches and whatnot. And then he decides that he's going to get the dog, and that, that he's going to get to this place. So I think it's a, I think it's a complex question to say, okay, well, what happens between Keanu Reeves realizing that Marcus cared about him, 
in some way, spared him, right? Realizing what had happened to Marcus, that Marcus had died because he had been unwilling to kill him, right? What does that mean about the man who bleeds versus uh, the man of full function or just the full function, right? You, it will open and you will, your stitches will tear and you will bleed, but you will have full function. Those are sort of two ways of looking at humanity, right? Is that we are beings, cut us, do we not bleed? Wrong us, do we not revenge, right? But this idea of like, we have feelings and we have experiences and we have reactions versus full function. We are cogs in a machine that are capable of doing things. We have special specializations, professions, right? All that stuff. Well, this, um, I think embedded in that, there's also this idea of there's, he has his assassin life where you are powerful. You have the ability to take lives and you stay in posh hotels and spend gold coins. Uh, but at the same time, you have given up something. You're, you're and you're also inviting violence to be done upon you. There's a, a monologue by the Russian gangster about how basically all this sorrow that's been brought to John Wick and him is as a result of all the people that they've killed. And so I think yeah. that's – in that sense, like that's how they bleed is like if you stay in this world long enough, eventually you're going to be killed. Like you're not going to die of natural causes in this world. Um, or you can stay – you can survive. You won't bleed if you stay in the normal world where Keanu had – you know, gone for a while with his wife. And so I think there's this, there's these two worlds and he has to pick which one he wants to be in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to add to what you said, Keanu does bleed in the world with his wife. And that's the thing that he has to figure, realize, right? Is that, um, especially if it, it makes me think also of when Ian McShane is telling the female assassin that she has, she, her, her membership has been terminated by her own hand. All right. Her membership is canceled to the continental. He says it's been done by her own hand. Like she's the one who is terminating her membership because she broke the rules, right? It's not, it's, it's like the rule of law is absolute and the agency belongs to the person who broke the rule. Um, but this idea that uh, that there's there's this karmic retribution, this Dantean moral retribution, where the suffering that's visited upon you is commensurate with and and caused by the sins that you commit, and this idea that okay, I got out of this world where we did all this killing and now we suffer and we feel terrible because we kill all these people and we're eventually going to get killed too, and it's all going to be dark and meaningless and we have to live in these baroque, really stuffy uh, New York apartments with lots of expensive dark woodwork and inadequate lighting, right? Like, and that's that's our, our life. Right? But a well-stocked bar. Because but a well-stocked bar. This movie also loved its booze. <laughs> that's true. There's a lot of booze in this movie. But it's like, I'm going to get out of that, and I'm going to get to a good life. I'm going to get to a life where I can be happy. I'm going to get to a life where I can have air and light, right? And where can I have, like, a nice modern couch, right? And where I can have, like, you know, love. And then it's this idea of, no, in that life, you bleed also, right? You lose your wife. You know, you lose your dog. The, the life, having the life outside of this cycle of violence does not, in fact, insulate you from suffering um, to much the same way, to much the way that Keanu Reeves might thought that it would. He thought he'd gotten away from suffering, you know? And, and I think that when he gets the dog at the end, it's notable that the dog that Keanu Reeves has at the beginning is a beagle, right? Because he has this dog that is just so innocent. Yes, it hunts birds, you know, whatever. It's a hunting dog. But, like, the dog's so innocent and so cuddly, and it wants to sleep on the floor, and it wants to sleep with him, and he looks at him with his big puppy dog eyes, and there's this sense of, like, purity to this dog. Right. And then the dog that Keanu Reeves gets at the end is a pit bull. Right. Um, is it a yeah. pit bull? It, yeah. it, it is some sort of dog, and it's also um, there's a little detail in <clears throat> in the movie which says that it is uh, scheduled to be put down. Yes, basically, which implies that this is a problem dog. 
Right. right. Nobody, nobody wants a dog. Nobody wants to adopt a dog. And maybe the dog like bit someone and has like behavior issues, basically. Yep. And is like this is uh, a dog that is like outside of acceptable society and should be put on. But but that is the dog that kind of picks up, and that is pretty telling. Yeah, and think about the lesson that that teaches about what does it mean to try to get away from bleeding, get away from pain. Um, you know, you try to get away from pain and bleeding by getting away from the bad things that you've done and not doing bad things anymore. Well, maybe you also kind of need to accept that there's going to be bad pain and, and bleeding. You're going to – Keanu Reeves needs to – he can't afford to have the guns underneath the concrete basement floor, right, and then the life above it having no guns at all. There needs to be some sort of combination of the two. He needs to – his character arc brings him to mm-hmm. a place of synthesis between the two sides of himself. Like that little limp when he's I, – I said to I said to my girlfriend who saw this movie with me and also loved it um and i actually i actually texted her i was like hey guess what the rotten tomato rating is for the uh the new keanu reeves action movie called john wick and she's like 30 percent. and i was like 93 can we please see it it's not 93 but it was at the time and i was like i know you would say it would be bad because i thought it was gonna be bad too because 17 uh, 47 ronin was so disappointing uh but no it's good we should watch it uh and like and i said to her um that keanu reeves has this little limp as he's walking his dog down by the hudson river Right, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's on the Brooklyn side. It's on the East River. That you know what they've that East River looks a lot nicer these days than it did when I lived in New York ten years ago. It depends on which part of the East River. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this little limp that he has when he's walking the dog. Um, and, I, and I said to my girlfriend, every time I see a guy walking a dog limp a little bit like that, I'm going to assume that all the things that happened to Keanu Reeves in this movie happened to that guy. That there's just like this history in the way that Keanu Reeves kind of limps with his dog. And, and they sort of, yeah, the dog that was going to be put down. You know, the dog, that's the dog he identifies with. That's a dog he can learn. If he can learn to love that dog, he can learn to love himself. And the idea that this movie is at all working in that space is somewhat of a stretch. But I think it's a worthy one. I think it's no, there. I mean, it's not that much of a stretch at all. No, yeah. Like- like that is like a very intentional detail on, on yeah. you know, in that scene where he's picking out that dog. It, it's, 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 it's quite remarkable in that regard. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting just the juxtaposition of people's urge for acceptance in this movie. Like, the, there's the Continental, and how Ian McShane's character is so nice, right? And, like, just so affable and gets along with everybody. And, and you know, the, everybody uses their first names for everybody else in this movie, except when they're talking about John Wick, right, as the guy who's going to kill all of them. But everyone's like, hey, John, you're back. Like, what's up, John? Hey, Harry, right? Like, do I know you? I think you do, right? Like, they all have this first name basis for each other, but at the same time, there's some aspect of, um, just I guess there's just the respect for human life thing. It's hard to sort of get around that, but it does show that their urges to try to accept each other and make friends uh, are maintained through like the uh, the difficulty. Yeah. So speaking of uh, characters' names, so um, John Wick, right? Are we supposed to read anything at all into the last name of Wick? Candlewick? Uh, is there something going on there? Like yeah, I think so. Like, candle, I think you candle, have to. Yeah, a candlewick is something that is about to be set on fire. Something that is embedded in wax, but that can be lit up and will burn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's also like phallic, a wick. Um, I mean, you could also go think maybe it's a secret garden reference, right? Because when a thing is wick, it has a life about it. And in the secret garden, wick refers to the, uh, the, the plants in the garden that have uh, kind of retreated underneath the, the rustle of weeds and dead leaves and whatnot, but which can be roused to life again through care of a gardener. Um, so you could think of a wick as something that can spring into flame or something that can spring into life. And those are two things that John Wick does over the course of the movie um, in different ways. 
It's also a very slow burn. Like when he wakes up and he decide he goes on this quest of revenge, he doesn't like sprint out of his house and go find the guy. He, yeah. It's a very deliberate process of like unearthing this life that he had left behind and making phone calls. And it's a very slow revenge burn, like a, like a wick on a candle. Yeah, yeah. he's not Johnny Blaze. And whatnot. Right. The other, would, the other thing about it is a, a wick can be put out and then also reignited, right? Which yeah. It speaks both to uh, you know him retiring from the assassin's life and then being uh, reactivated, reignited into uh, into that whole world. Um, but also reminds me of the marketing of the movie, right? In which the words John Wick are written out, and in in place of the I is the silhouetted figure of Keanu Reeves, right? And that also again goes back to the meta thing about his. Um, his career in some, yeah. in some ways, like being put out a little bit and also being reignited, hopefully with yeah. this movie. Yeah, Keanu. And, it's all, he's back. <laughs> and one more thing about John Wick is that it, it has an old timey feel to it, kind of like a brother's grim feel because it relates to candles and because it has that kind of like sing songy, like it, it's a name that could be from a children's story, right? Like, uh, you know, like snow white or like Rose red, you know, John Wick. Uh, it, it feels like that it could be a character from an old story told to scare children. It could be like a name of the boogeyman, right? Like, like, uh, hmm. what are some of the other names? Like, you know, well, like Jack Frost, uh, less, well, less so Jack Frost, but like, it does, it does feel like a fable. It has this very simple yeah. setup and you have the, the, the you, you use the, the, I think the phrase earlier, like kind of uh, not quite magical realism, but at the same time, not realism. Like it's not quite the real world. It's archetypes moving against each other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, old, old Nick is a name for the devil, right? And John Wick. And also this movie talks about, was it Baba Yaga? Is, is, is it Baba Yaga that they talk about? I couldn't catch a yeah. bunch of the gringo Russian in this movie. But <laughs> I, I do think there were a couple of cool moments. But yeah, it's Baba Yaga, the boogeyman, whatever, you know, the, this trio of sisters, the witch, right? Like John Wick. It's sort of like Howl's Moving Castle also is kind of a similar, also lies in that sort of realm of, of old-timey stuff. Um, but yeah. Oh, and also, I think that at one point when uh, the guy from 30 Rock and Oz is like, where's my, I want to get a gun and I want to get out there. I Dennis think- Duffy, the beeper king. <laughs> <laughs> when he's like, I'm going to, and, and the guy goes, and I think the guy says, you know, I think he says Chortu, right, to him. Because he says, I didn't quite catch what he said in Russian, but the guy said, what does that mean? I don't speak English. And he said, good luck. Um, the, the, the word chortu, and I might be mispronouncing it because I took Russian a long time ago, it both means good luck and also like to the devil in Russian. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of like this, this idea that in Russia you can't actually – in Russian you don't actually like say nice things to people because like – or you don't, wish them, <laughs> you don't wish them good luck sincerely because if you wish them good luck, you'll curse them with bad luck. You have to ironically tell them to like break a leg, right? You have to be like, you know, oh, to the devil, right? Um, and, and and it would be interesting that he said that with sort of a double meaning. That's a pretty loaded, a loaded. There's a lot of lore in this movie, and a lot of texture, and a lot of depth. And it's all very, as you said, it's like it's simple and it's pared down. But the individual beats have a lot of richness and complexity to them. And I think that's one of several of the, the the stuff about this movie we love. Anyway, we're running low on time. Um, ben, did you have one more topic you wanted to bring up before we uh, we punch out on this one? Yeah, so uh, I guess maybe it's partially just because of the the book club with video games on my mind. But I was watching the scene in particularly the Red Circle, the the club, mm. where he kind of starts at the basement and then he's chasing uh, Theon Greyjoy through the club and always kind of one step behind him. And while I was watching, it, I was like, this feels like a v- level in a video game. Mm-hmm. Like there's these endless series of bad guys who I noticed at one point were all wearing like pretty much identical clothes. Like there was one room where they were all wearing black suits with red shirts yeah. underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so it very much felt like a video game. There's even the, there's one of the funniest bits of the movie uh, in kind of a morbid sense is where he's got the guy like pinned up against the, the wall and he tries to shoot him, but he doesn't have bullets. So he has to like reload while he's also pinning this guy up against the wall. Uh, and that felt very much like a video game where you're constantly reloading and but it, it's not quite realistic about what's going on. Uh, and I wasn't sure if this was a coincidence. I wasn't 100 percent oh, sure if this movie was in dialogue with video games until the next scene yeah. <laughs> where the guy's playing the Xbox, shooting people and then get sniped through the yeah. head. Yeah, and and Fionn Greyjoy is begging him, turn, stop playing the video game, turn off the video game. <laughs> He's basically saying, like, make the video game stop. I don't want to get shot. <laughs> I can't handle this, right? And then, then he gets, and then that's Turtle, right? Was that Turtle from Entourage that got shot in the was, head? I didn't think it was the same guy. I, mean, oh, I don't know. Maybe it was. I, I don't know. I got. I got. I want to confirm or deny this before we move on tonight. Whether that guy was in fact Turtle or not Turtle. Although I mean, then again. He was in Theon Greyjoy's entourage, so he's at least a turtle figure, if not turtle himself. Uh, no, I don't think it is. It wasn't turtle. It just looked like him. Okay, fair enough. I thought it was turtle, but I guess it wasn't. Um, oh, well. Well, on that, anything? any last ones from you, Mark? Anything that you want to uh, bring up before we roll out? Yeah, I just want to say when I got home from seeing this movie, um, the first thing I did was hug my dog. Because my dog is so sweet. And that dog. Oh, so sad. So sad. My dog is here in my lap. Say, hey, Harper. Say hi to everybody overthinking a podcast. Say hi to everyone overthinking a podcast. My dog doesn't say much. She's here. She's like, just, you have to take my word for it. She's like, am I right? She's right in front of the microphone, and it's as if she is podcasting. I'm going to take a picture of this, actually, so I can post it in the show notes. Okay, continue. All right. Great. Well, if you have anything to say to any of us about John Wick, about Taken, about Edge of Tomorrow, or Riddick, or any of these other ancillary or associated cultural effects, if you have anything to say about board game movie adaptations like Battleship and the Rest or the Ouija board movie, if you saw the Ouija board movie and were like, you guys shouldn't have ragged on that, that movie was awesome, we want to hear from you. And also we want to hear your messages of support and uh, pettage for Mark's dog. Uh, Parker, you said? Harper. Harper, Harper. So Harper Mark's Lee. Harper. My dog's name is Harper Lee. Get it Harper right. Lee. <laughs> Harper Lee. So if you want to wish Harper Lee uh, a good and safe evening so that Mark doesn't have to go off on an endless terror of vengeance, uh, you know where to send. You can call us at the phone number that, uh, was it 203, I don't even know what it is. 203-285-6401. Yes, and we do listen to those voicemails, and people do call it. And you should email us at podcastsoverthinkingit.com. You should subscribe to the newsletter. You should join the book club. You should do all these fun things because you know what? It's, 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 it's enjoyable stuff, and we enjoy it, and we want you to be part of it. So for all this, your hub, your location, the place where you need to drive your Chevy Tahoe to in order to comfortably disembark upon your cultural adventure is visiting us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve